Hello, and welcome to the Accounting and Regulatory Updates from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum podcast series. In our final episode, Terrence Carter, Managing Partner of Carter's Professional Corporation, provides key developments of law and compliance issues for charities. And now, the presentation from Terrence. Uh, what I'm going to be doing over the next hour is bringing you uh, sort of an update of the key issues from the standpoint of a, a central charity law together with some compliance issues. Uh, I'm going to try to put it into context for you, make it practical, and it reminds me of a, of a story of two men up in a hot air balloon, uh, and they got lost. And they called down to a man walking on the road, and they said, excuse me, sir, can you tell us where we are? And he called up and said, yes, I can. You're in a hot air balloon. And one of the men in the balloon said, he must be a lawyer. And the other one said, why? Well, he says, what, what he says is absolutely correct, but totally useless. So we're going to try to make this uh, practical for you today. Uh, you, we do have some handouts. Christina, you're, uh, you're still doing some handouts. That's great. Uh, if you're like me, I hate to make uh, notes. I like to sit back and listen, so that's what I've tried to do for you today. Uh, the, the handouts are obviously available online for downloading, uh, but if you'd like to have a hard copy because you'd <clears throat> like to mark it up or make paper airplanes out of it, uh, Christina's got some copies to, to provide to you. Uh, everything I'm going to be covering today is uh, already covered in our uh, website uh, of carters.ca or also charitylaw.ca. So if you want to get some more uh, details on some of the, the topics, uh, feel free to, to go to the website and you can get uh, all sorts of information available for you at that point. Uh, we're going to go through about 55 minutes in discussions. I'm going to try to end by about uh, 10.30 my uh, presentation uh, so that we can have some time for questions. But if we run out of time uh, during the coffee break, I'll stick around here up at the front uh, and uh, be available to answer anything that you might have uh, uh, as a question for me. So let's get started. We're going to be talking about a, a number of different topics that you can see on the, the handout. And your, your question probably is, how am I ever going to get through it in 55 minutes? And uh, let's see what we can do. Again, it's just the highlights, the things that I think you as executives and professionals in the sector need to know about I'm going to provide to you in a 55-minute stretch. The focus, of course, is on registered charities, uh, but it does overlap uh, to a certain extent with not-for-profit organizations because charities, uh, if they're incorporated, are not-for-profit corporations. So there's a little bit of overlap, particularly on the, on the corporate side. Well, let's go back for a moment and take a look at the budget from last year. Budget from... 2018. Why is that still relevant for us today? Well, there's a couple of things that are helpful in it that are worth mentioning. Uh, if you're trying to make a gift outside of Canada, it's always good to know uh, that you can give to prescribed universities. And those are universities that are considered to be qualified donees. There was some confusion about whether or not they had to be listed in a schedule. And it's now being clarified that that schedule in the Income Tax Act is not a requirement. So they sort of tidied that up. Second point is about municipalities and being eligible donees. Kind of a, a minor little point, but I think it's worthwhile. If your 
client, if your charity loses charitable status and you have to give away the property that you have, you've got to do that within one year of revocation, and you're always looking for a recipient that can receive it. Sometimes if you have assets that are difficult, like cemetery properties, you don't have anyone to give it to. And so it's possible now to have a municipality that applies to be an eligible donee uh, to be available to be able to receive uh, that particular type of asset. The budget also uh, went in and described uh, an initiative by the federal government dealing with political activities that I want to spend a bit more time on. And just to be clear, uh, in order to get through 55 minutes and cover all the topics, I'm not going to cover everything that's on the slides. Again, you can take a look at uh, the website for some more materials. We're going to spend a little bit of time dealing with political activities. Political activities are gone. They're no more. It's a big change, and it's a good change. And frankly, it's a, it, it really is a time of celebration uh, because this has been a, a long, hard fight for the charitable sector. And it really goes back to 2012. And at that time, the, the federal government, different federal government, was concerned about environmental charities, about American money coming into Canada that was somehow going to influence uh, the development of pipelines in Canada. And uh, as a result, there was a focus by the federal government to attack environmental charities. And they were successful. And they made changes to the Income Tax Act to make it more difficult for uh, charities' relation to political activities. And in addition, there were audits that were started. Canada Revenue Agency was required to focus on charities doing political activities. Now, prior to 2012, I, ha I have to tell you, political activities was not on the radar of most charities. Charity lawyers didn't really debate the issue. It was kind of a sleeper thing. But all of a sudden, there was a focus on audits, and, and we, together with other charity lawyers, spent a lot of time defending charities that were on, under audit from Canada Revenue Agency. What was interesting was that the federal election back in 2015 provided an opportunity for the charitable sector to say, this is nonsense. This doesn't make sense. And the current federal government picked up on it, and they provided in their mandate uh, when they were elected that the whole area of audits of charities under political activities would be reviewed. So there was a, a political element to bring it up in 2012, and there was a political element to deal with the problem of charities and political activities in the last election. I mention that because we have a new election coming up. And as the charitable sector is looking to make a difference, this is a good opportunity uh, to be able to uh, put forward platforms to our political uh, parties to see if they'll pick up on it the same way that it was picked up back in 2017. Well, the story goes, in 2016, uh, there was a decision by the federal government to set up a, a consultation uh, group, and that, that was... Uh, set up with five experts within the sector, and they came back on a report back in May of 2017. And in that report, uh, they made it clear that political activities as defined under the Income Tax Act was, was problematic. 
to get rid of political activities. Everyone was confused about it. And instead, there should be a different terminology used. The one they came up with was, here we go, public policy dialogue and development activities, referred to as PPDDA, or now referred to as PADAS. You know, PADAS is now kind of the, the new way to refer to it. So political activities out there recommended, instead there'd be PADAS that would be able to be done, and uh, their recommendation was that uh, it could be done without limit. And to get rid of the tests that had been in place before the substantially all tests in the Income Tax Act that some of you may recall, basically the substantially all tests said, it's gone now, that uh, a charity uh, could be involved in political activities uh, up to 10% of its resources provided it was incidental to its charitable purposes and didn't involve partisan political activities. That caused a lot of confusion within the sector and provided the ability of the regulator, Canada Revenue Agency, when doing audits to come up with interpretations that weren't always in line with what charities understood. So that was the recommendation was to get rid of the substantially all test, which was a good thing. And we all applauded it back in May of 2017. But nothing happened. We waited. We got into the budget of February 2018, more promises, but nothing happened. And finally, the courts moved in because an organization, a charity, Canada Without Poverty, brought an application. They were under audit, and they took the position that the political activities provisions in the Income Tax Act were unconstitutional, were a violation of the charter right of expression. And they were successful. It was amazing. And as a result, the, the federal government responded pretty quickly. In August, they said, well, we're going to get on with doing the recommendations in the consultation report from the previous year, but we're going to be still proceeding with an, an appeal of the Canada Without Poverty decision. So there was kind of a reaction from the sector going, well, it's, it's good news you're going to finally do something, but it's bad news that there's going to be uh, an appeal. That appeal has been abandoned as of last Friday. And so if you're looking at a very interesting decision about uh, the provisions of the Income Tax Act dealing with charities, do read it. It is now good law in Canada. The appeal has been abandoned uh, by the federal government, and frankly, they're to be applauded for it. There'd be no point uh, in continuing with that appeal under the circumstances. So then, after uh, the decision, Canada Without Borders, then the federal government did move forward uh, with their amendments, promised amendments. They did that in September. The draft legislation was pretty good. Uh, because it got rid of political activities, got rid of the substantially all tests, and we were relatively happy, but it didn't explain what charities could do. It got rid of the limitation, but it did not explain how charities could become involved uh, in doing public policy, dialogue, and development activities. The position that the government took was we'd have to revert back to the common law. The common law is great, although there's different interpretations of it, and there was a suggestion that there should be an incidental test that would apply. 
Well, if you're a lawyer, you love tests. You know, tests are good uh, because you, you get to opine. That, that's a fancy word for saying, you know, what do you think? And, and people pay you to opine on what an incidental test is. All I know is that incidental test isn't good for the charitable sector because it's, it's another way of a limitation. Whether it be 5%, 10 50%, we don't know. We can debate the matter and, and we can all do lengthly opined opinions about what that meant. And CRA, to their credit, they had to respond. They came up with a draft guidance in uh, the beginning of October <coughs> where they were trying to articulate what that meant and it didn't make any sense. Not their fault. They were just trying to do the best they could with what they had. Uh, and, and that guidance got pulled on October the 25th when the... Uh, finance came back with new legislation to get it finally right in dealing with political activities. And that legislation then formed part of a bill being Bill C-86, and that bill then got a royal assent on December the 13th of, uh, of last year. What's better about the legislation? Well, first of all, it, it indicates that a charitable organization uh, has to pursue a charitable purpose. We didn't have that wording before. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because as Mark was talking about before, charities are all about what? The purpose, right? The purpose. And it wasn't clear from the Income Tax Act that that actually was a requirement for charitable organizations. It is now. And that reflects the common law. They got rid of the 10% the substantially uh, all tests. And they also then included in the definition of charitable activities that it would include a PPDDAs, otherwise known as PADAs. Everyone say it after me, PADAs. You know, you, you can be a hit at the cocktail parties going, I just heard this fascinating lecture on PADAs. Do you know what PADAs are? And then you can opine that it's for PPDDA, which is short for Public Policy Dialogue and Development Activities, and, and wow the group you know, or put them to sleep. It all depends which, which way you're going with it on it. So the, the legislation, the Bill C-86, says charitable activities includes PADAs. That's good. And what it also uh, alluded to, although it didn't state it, but the, the note stated that it could be done without limitation. A charity could do just PADAs, and it would still be charitable, provided that the PADAs we're furthering a charitable purpose. Everything comes back to the purpose, the charitable purpose. And it went one step further and it said, if you're doing padas, that's considered to be uh, achieving your charitable purpose and for no other purpose. And if you're wondering why that's in there, it's so that there cannot be any misunderstanding. Pursuing a pada cannot be seen as a collateral non a charitable purpose, a collateral political purpose. The lawyers in the room will, will appreciate that because that's always a, a crowd pleaser when you're doing audits with Canada Revenue Agency. They'll say, well, you really got a collateral non-charitable purpose in the form of a political purpose. Well, that's been taken away. But the question comes up is, well, does this mean that charities can actually become lobby organizations? Where's the charity and what they can do? And there was a, a lot of debate concerning that. In fact, there was uh, uh, Senate hearings, which I've made uh, reference to, 
No, I haven't. That's coming up in my discussions. The, the Senate of Canada is doing a review of, of charities, and um, they had hearings. And in November and early December, the big debate before the Senate hearing was, has the legislation gone too far? Has Bill C-86 uh, extended things further than it should? That was the debate. And a number of people in the sector appear before the Senate, I, I was one of them, to say, no, no, the government's actually got it right with Bill C-86. It is possible to do PADAS, which includes uh, trying to change the law in Canada or in a, another country, and that is still a charitable activity, provided it's achieving a charitable purpose. So it all comes down to what is your purpose? If you don't know what your, your purpose is, you have a problem. When you set up a charity, it's got to be for an accepted charitable purpose. Relief of poverty, advancement of education, advancement of religion, or a whole long list under the fourth head dealing with the purposes recognized by the courts uh, as being charitable. So your organization has to have a legitimate charitable purpose. But if you have a legitimate charitable purpose, the means of achieving it through the Badaz, which can include contacting and influencing the government, is a means to an end, and it's okay. An example that, that I gave when I was before the Senate committee is, if we look at the, the abolition of slavery, or the, the, st the stop of human trafficking, sometimes the only way that you can achieve that is what? By trying to influence and change the laws in a country. And so, what we were concerned about was what would Canada Revenue Agency have to say about it? Because the legislation fortunately was passed on December the 13th, but what would the regulator, Canada Revenue Agency, have to say about it? Would they try to limit the scope of the broad legislation? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm really pleased to say that they got it right. They came up with a draft guidance that came out on January the 21st, it's open for comments until April the 23rd. And it provides some explanation of, of what a PADA means. And in the course of doing that, they've done a very good job of reflecting the recommendations from the consultation report going back to May of 2017. What they, done, what they have done is indicated PADAs, Public Policy Dialogue and Development Activities, includes, to be clear, and you can see it up on the screen, advocacy. Charities may advocate to keep or change a law or policy decision of any level of government in Canada or a foreign country. And you can also do mobilizing others. Charities can call on supporters or the general public to contact politicians of all parties to express their support of or opposition to a particular law, policy, or decision of any level of government in Canada or foreign currency. Do I hear an amen? That's good. I can try it again. Do I hear an amen? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And what they also do, there's other examples that they have uh, dealing with you know, information and research and uh, uh, social media. There's a number of different examples, but those are the two key ones. And what the guidance also does is indicate that PADAs can be done without limitations. There is no uh, quantitative limitation. The lawyers are going to be out of business, you know. 
we're not going to be able to opine on whether or not you've gone above 10% or, or what constitutes your resources that make it up. It has simplified what charities can do. 100% of their resources can be applied. But, and this is the big but, there are still mile markers that you've got to work with. There are still fence posts that you've got to be aware of. It isn't just open season. It, you're not going to be able to set up a charity to be a lobby group. You can do lobbying, <coughs> mind you, but it has to be more than that. It all goes back to the purpose. And what the guidance makes very clear is that a, being able to do a padai has to be done in the context of achieving a charitable purpose. So if your padai, i.e. trying to change the law in Canada, becomes, as a means, becomes your end, if that's what you're really about, and that's reflected in your objects, you're not going to make it because having a purpose of trying to change the law in Canada or another country is not a charitable purpose. So you need to go back and very carefully look at what your purposes are contained in your corporate documentation. That's your touchstone. That's what you always want to go back to and make sure that you're achieving that. The means of doing it, yes, can include putting pressure uh, on the government. That's great. No limitations. But you must be able to connect everything back to the purpose. If you don't, you are going to have a problem uh, with CRA. Next, you've got to make sure that your padas that you're doing uh, will achieve uh, a public benefit. So your purpose and your activities have to add up that you're doing something good. You know, it's, it's got a social purpose associated with it. And in addition to that, you have prohibitions that are still in place. The legislation still keeps the prohibition, which is a good prohibition, that charities are prohibited from directly or indirectly supporting or opposing a political party or a candidate for office. Still there. All right? That's your mile marker. That's your fence post. You've got to work with, within that. And what they've done in the guidance is set out some very helpful uh, indications of, well, what does direct or indirect mean? Uh, direct's pretty easy. You know, on your website you say, we really like Justin Trudeau, or we really like Andrew Scheer, and we want you to vote for him. That's pretty easy. That's direct, and it's not a good idea to do that. You know, try to avoid that when you can. Or make a donation to your favorite, uh, uh, or the charity, or you encourage people to make donations to a particular political party. Where it gets interesting, where the devil's in the details, is looking at indirect support or opposition. And this is important. Because at the end of the day, charities still have an obligation to maintain books and records. Books and records is the best way that Canada Revenue Agency has on an audit to show that you're in trouble. Because you have a positive obligation that you must prove that you're compliant. It's not up to CRA to say and allege and prove that you're not complying. It's your obligation to always be able to prove that you are compliant. How do you do it? It's really boring. You know, it's called books and records. Yeah. That means you've got to keep your minutes of everything you do with your committees and, and your board meetings uh, and your correspondence. And what the guidance says is when they come in to do an audit, they can go into your internal documentation, and if it shows that even though, you know, your website doesn't say that you oppose Justin Trudeau, 
If there's a document that says really what we need to do is oppose Justin Trudeau or support Andrew Scheer or, or vice versa, that's an indirect supporter opposition. And they can also look at the minutes of your board meetings to see really what you were doing. What's the takeaway? Very important to maintain good books and records and make darn sure that whatever you're communicating reflects that your purpose is your charitable purpose, not a political purpose. All right? Now, just a little bit of a sidebar, when CRA does come for audits, and we, we do lots of uh, audits for, for charities, they have the ability to look at anything they want. They can do what I call a data dump. They can look at all of your emails, all of your social media, look at everything, and they'll, they'll be looking to see whether or not you've got any evidence of indirect support or opposition of a political party or candidate. So if you want to get involved in order to achieve your purpose in doing PADAS, books and records are extremely important to have in place. And the other thing I just want to mention about the uh, political uh, development, and I can just go back one slide, there we go. Uh, if you're going to be trying to change the law in order to achieve your charitable purpose, you must be compliant with lobbyist legislation. And lobbyist legislation is at the federal level, provincial level, and sometimes at the municipal level. So even though it's not a requirement under the Income Tax Act, because charities must comply with the law, if you fail to register for, as a lobbyist, and you've got to look at the requirements in each province, sometimes you don't, sometimes you do, but if you haven't complied, that itself is a basis of noncompliance and can be a basis of sanctions by CRA, so it's important to do it. The guidance does make reference to, you've got to be concerned about uh, compliance with provincial law. I'm not exactly sure what they're referring to as far as I can see. There, there's nothing in the guidance which is problematic at a provincial law standpoint. If it was, then the charities in Ontario wouldn't have the benefit of the PADAS. So I think CRA is probably going to provide some further uh, explanation concerning that. So it's a, good news, it's a good news story. This has been hard fought by the sector since 2012. It's been seven years. And we have something positive to show for that. We really are leaders in the Western world with regards to recognition of what charities are able to do to achieve their purpose. Mark talked about social enterprise. R wonderful. This is more, a little bit more of a technical side, but it's a, it's a good news story. So let's move into a couple of other things that are developing. Uh, the 2018 fall economic statement had some interesting things. I, I think the government seems to be supportive of the charitable sector. They're looking at bringing back uh, the Charity Advisory Committee. Uh, they, the previous government got rid of that back in the mid-2000s. That would be good for an opportunity for the sector to have input uh, into the minister, both of revenue and finance, concerning the regulation of charities. So that's a good development. Uh, they also wanted to provide some incentives concerning journalism, concerning uh, different programs on <coughs> social finance, so they've done that. But what's interesting is that they're likely to have in the next federal budget coming up soon a provision that <coughs> would make uh, certain nonprofit uh, journalism organizations, even though they may not be charities, 
uh, they'll have the ability to be able to receive donations and issue receipts as a qualified donee, uh, which is a way of extending the tax benefits under the Income Tax Act without necessarily having to meet the definition of what a charity is at common law. So stay tuned. Uh, we're likely to see something in the budget concerning that, and there are some other <coughs> tax incentives that uh, they put into the uh, fall uh, economic update. I mentioned about the uh, Senate uh, Committee, Special Senate Committee on the Charitable Sector. This, too, is a good news story. Um, uh, this started at, at the end of January of last year. They've had hearings, uh, generally speaking, every two weeks or so on a Monday night. Uh, and it's providing an opportunity for the sector to provide commentaries to the Senate concerning ways to improve uh, the regulation not only of charities but nonprofit organizations. The report was due at the end of December. It's now been officially extended over to the end of September. Likely they're going to get a report, we think, uh, by the end of June. If you have an opportunity to appear or if you put in submissions, this is the chance for the sector to provide meaningful input uh, into a government process. Even though it's, you know, the Senate obviously doesn't control what the government does, it's likely to be taken very seriously. And this is a, a really another good news opportunity for, uh, for the sector. I've included in the materials uh, some more uh, technical uh, references to CRA materials. I'm not going to go through uh, all of it. Uh, some of it for practitioners. You, you can't do draft applications anymore, which is kind of a, a sad thing. And uh, when you're uh, issuing receipts, you've got to get the right website on it uh, by the end of uh, March of this year. Uh, series put a number of publications up, which I make reference to in the, uh, uh, in the PowerPoint. Uh, and in addition, uh, the sort of Go Electronic, the CHAMP project that CRA uh, has had in place, uh, that's going to be uh, delayed uh, until uh, the end of June of 2019. That will allow your T3010s to be filed electronically together with your applications for charitable status. So, you know, some good developments that are taking place uh, by CRA in that, uh, in that regard. Uh, there's a couple of other uh, publications that I mentioned as well, but the one that I want to focus on uh, deals with the report uh, that came out uh, in January, uh, the report on the charities program on January the 11th of 2019, covering the years 2016 through 2018. It's great. It's easy to read. It's glossy. That's great. It's a good news story. Everyone likes it, but you've got to parse down to see what, in fact, is, is happening with regards to the regulation of charities. So we pointed out that uh, the, the number uh, of applications has decreased, not a lot. Uh, the number of registrations, again, has decreased, not a lot. Um, whether or not that's a trend, I don't know. Uh, certainly, when clients contact me about registration of a new charity, I spend a lot of time, free time, just explaining to them, do you really want to do it? It's tough. You know, it's a tough road to go. Uh, it's a highly regulated uh, area. And then it also indicates that uh, the, the total number uh, of revocations uh, has increased. Now, it's not all because they're the result of audits. Some of them are voluntary revocations. But the number has gone up from 1,372 to 1,562 revocations. 
And again, that, that may be a trend or not. We'll have to, uh, we'll have to see. But at the back of the report, they, they have an indication of what the compliance folks are doing. And the compliance uh, people at CRA, they're, they're doing their best. They're doing education programs, and that's all good. But their focus is, and I've set it out for you, reviewing the boards of registered charities to identify whether there are concerns related to ineligible individuals. What does that mean? Ineligible individuals are, are poor folks that have been subject of being on the board or being the officers or managers of charities that have lost their charitable status for serious noncompliance, as well as dealing with uh, criminal code charges without pardons uh, and even provincial offenses. The fact that you meet the definition of an eligible individual doesn't mean that the CRA will necessarily enforce that, but now they're indicating they're going to review. Because if you're an ineligible individual, you can't be on the board of a charity, an officer, or a manager for a period of five years. Otherwise, the, the charity in question uh, can be subject to sanction by CRA. So the ineligible individual has been around that provision for probably about eight years now, and they're indicating it's time to start looking around. What's the takeaway? You gotta make sure that your directors and officers and senior managers swear in a stack of Bibles that they're not an ineligible individual, and if they are, that they will agree to get off the board, the officers or management. You need to put that into your employment contracts for senior managers and go through the process of looking to see whether that person is or isn't. And you need to have regular updates in relation to your board positions to make sure that if they go off the, you know, off the wall and they fit within the category of an eligible individual, they'll disclose that so that the board can take appropriate steps. The second thing that uh, the report says that they're going to be focusing on reviewing activities involving the acquisition and construction of real estate to ensure such activities further a charitable purpose. What does that mean? We don't know, but I will surmise that they're looking to make sure that assets are being used for a charitable purpose or if it's going to be an investment, it has to meet the definition of being a prudent uh, in, uh, meet the prudent investor rule, depending upon what province that you're in, uh, or if you're uh, trying to deal with it as a program-related investment that's under the Community Economic Development guidance, whether you meet those terms. In other words, take a look at your inventory of property. If it's been used for a charitable purpose, great. If it's not been used for a charitable purpose, it's income-producing, then you need to go through a process to make sure you can justify because CRA coming to do an audit may be asking you some questions. Having your own internal report as part of your board minutes saying that you've looked at it and you're considered that what you've got is being used for a charitable purpose or it's an investment um, or maybe it's a business, a related business, goes a long ways because it shows as a board you've given some consideration to it. So it's well worth it to do it. Some of the tax decisions, uh, I'm going to do them quickly. Just point out some of the, the reasons why you may want to take a look at the first one dealing with the Marcoux decision. Uh, a lot of you will be involved in, in doing fundraising dinners uh, where you'll, you'll have the rubber chicken for a certain amount and you'll have the price of the ticket a different amount and, you know, you're able to issue a charitable receipt between the two. 
This decision, although it's complicated dealing with tax shelter, basically enforces that if you're going to do split receding, you've got to be careful to identify the difference between the gift portion and the benefit portion. Right? There has to be a clear distinction because that's what the court uh, pounced upon in this situation. Facts are complicated, but always remember when you're doing split receding to be able to separate the two. This decision, the McQuaig uh, Balkwell uh, decision, deals with valuation. You're going to do a fundraising dinner and someone comes up to you with these wonderful bottles of wine and they want a receipt. Whose obligation is it to get it right with the valuation? It's the charity. How are you going to do it? You're going to get an appraisal. What sort of appraisal? In this situation, the appraiser for the, you know, for the donor and the charity came up with a pretty high appraisal. They, they took fair market value and they kind of grossed it up because uh, if you bought it through the LCBO, they'd be adding on all sorts of profits. Except the particular wine wasn't available through the LCBO and the tax court looked at it and said, nope, that's too high of a valuation. And they brought it down to a much smaller amount, 4,700 instead of 23. What's the lesson? If you're going to get gifts in kind, your obligation as a charity is to get it right with regards to the valuation. And CRA can question it. Do not fool around with trying to have a, a, a grossed up appraisal. It's not worth it. It's not worth the trouble. There are or penalties that you can face as a result of that. So that's a good reminder. A couple of things I want to mention about privacy. Privacy is the new area of compliance that charities need to be aware of. We've had Pepita around for some time, and if you're in BC, you've got your own privacy legislation, uh, and Alberta, the same thing as well. If you don't have a privacy policy, you need one. Even if you think it doesn't apply to you, it will be important to create the standard of a privacy policy. Why? Because uh, if your challenge in relation to the personal information that you have, whether it be donors or whether it be volunteers or whether it be employees, if you don't have the due diligence to show that you've done the expectations under the federal PEPITA legislation, you're going to be in trouble. And now, in addition, if you uh, have been following there's now new requirements coming out of the EU, the referred to General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, another alphabet soup. And all I'll say is this, it sets up very high standards, it has tremendously onerous penalty provisions, and it does have extraterritorial provisions. So if your website is focused on reaching out to folks in the EU, uh, or you have uh, uh, services that you're offering to them uh, or uh, you even have the, the ability to be able to uh, process and, and monitor what the recipients are receiving, maybe even through cookies. You may be subject to GDPR. So you need to work with your uh, legal counsel to work through getting a privacy policy that will be compliant with GDPR uh, requirements. The other thing on privacy is November the 1st of last year, under federal privacy legislation, PEPITA, now if you have a data breach, which can happen to anyone, you know, we all read in the paper about problems with Walmart and different hotels, and data breaches happen. It's a question of when. When a data breach happens, now you have a positive obligation 
But you have to tell the people that are affected and you have to do a mea culpa uh, over to the uh, Privacy Commissioner of Canada if, if it's breach of security safeguards resulting in real risk of significant harm. So making that determination you should do with your legal counsel. Your lawyer may not get it right, right? It's, but you can blame the lawyer. The fact that you've had a discussion with legal counsel protects it under a solicitor-client privilege so that you'll know which way you should go in relation to the mandatory. Privacy is the biggest compliance issues that we find that charities are now having to deal with, so it's important to be ahead of the curve. A couple of comments uh, dealing with uh, corporate matters. If you're incorporated federally, you'll be delighted to know that the old uh, federal legislation, Canada Corporations Act, has it, died. It's over. It's dead. It's buried. It's gone. And so if you haven't uh, continued under the new legislation, it's, you're a little late. You know, you, you, you could be in for a bit of a surprise or disillusion. Um, <clears throat> secondly, in dealing with Ontario, uh, Ontario, it, it, you know what? They're working at it. They're working at it. I mean, 2010. You know, 2010 is when they had the the new legislation, Canada, or the Ontario Not-for-Profit Corporations Act, ONCA, um, it appears to be because of computer problems. I'm sure it's not intentional. But we don't have uh, the legislation in place yet. And the most recent word from the government is sometime in early 2020. We hope. We don't know, you know. You, you can always remain hopeful to the very end. But when that uh, legislation is proclaimed, then you're, you're all going to be busy if you're in Ontario with Ontario corporations because there will be a period of time for a transition and you'll need to, uh, to plan ahead. You don't need to panic, though. We panicked back in 2012 and nothing happened for eight years, so, you know, you, you can relax for a bit, but not too long, right? But in the meantime, uh, the, the government, to its credit, uh, did take steps to take the existing Ontario, not, uh, Ontario Corporations Act, and they put some improvements in it in a short term. So I've, I've set those out for you. Do take a look at it. It does help. It just means that it's a little easier to operate. <clears throat> Members can have meetings by telephone, electronic means, and you can dump your board by majority vote. And you don't have to be a member to be a director, but you have to get consent. And so those are good things. And in addition, uh, under the OCA, Ontario Corporations Act, you now have the ability of getting protection as a, uh, a objective standard of, of care, which is a, a good thing. Corporations have uh, the capacity of an actual person. That's great and special provisions with the public guardian trustee of Ontario being revised to reflect it. If you're in Ontario, you don't know. Uh, an Ontario corporation, you have to have a, a list, a schedule, uh, a record of all of your real estate uh, holdings. And you must have had that by December the 10th of last year. So if you haven't, you want to certainly take a look at that. Given a bit of reference here to other corporate updates with folks from across Canada, BC, with the transition to the new Societies Act, uh, had to be done by the end of November of last year. If you haven't done it, you should talk to your BC council. I want to talk a little bit uh, about um, developments uh, in Ontario. Good developments. Um, Public Guardian Trustee has been very active in a, in a good way in trying to move forward with different matters. Uh, social investments. 
Mark talked about social enterprise. What's the difference between social enterprise and a social investment? Well, that could be a, a great topic for, for another day. But the social investment is to provide uh, the ability of charities to be able to make a social investment as opposed to an investment under the prudent investor standard and the trustee act. So what does that mean? Prudent investor is you've got to focus on the return. Uh, a social investment has got lower expectations. It all has to be focused on achieving your charitable purpose, and you have to get some type of a financial return, but it doesn't have to be the same as you would expect with a prudent investor. You, you get some more wiggle room because it's all about the purpose. It's not about the profit. If you want to make a buck as a prudent investor, it's a profit return. Social investment, it's a purpose focus that you have. And so the... Uh, Public Guardian Trustee have uh, put out a, a guidance that helps to explain it. It's helpful. It came out in April uh, of last year. Uh, there are a number of things that you've got to do. You've got to look to see whether you need to get legal advice. You don't have to get legal advice, but you have to think whether you should get legal advice. And what do you think you should do? You know, you should get advice. It doesn't say legal advice, but it's a good idea to get professional advice before you do a social investment. And then you also have to be concerned if, if you're using monies that come from endowment funds, you cannot use endowment funds for social investments uh, unless you're satisfied that you're going to get a return of your capital back because it's kind of contrary to uh, what, a, uh, what a, uh, a perpetual endowment is. It means you don't touch the capital. Or unless you've worked into your endowment documentation that you can do a social investment. So there are some tricks there that you've got to watch for. It's not just carte blanche, go off and do social investments. And in addition, this is the one area that I wish the regulators were coordinated better. Uh, even though we can do social investments in Ontario, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency has their own set of rules in relation to investments focused on a charitable purpose, and they're called program-related investments. And just because you meet the test of a social investment provincially doesn't mean that you're necessarily meeting the requirements federally for a program-related investment. So what you, should you do? You've got to look at both. You've got to work with your legal counsel or professional counsel to make sure that you're covering both. So hopefully in, in the future the regulators can help to coordinate that so it's a one-stop shop to go to get information as opposed to having to cross-reference back and forth. The other thing that's a good development, remuneration of directors. Common law in Ontario, uh, directors cannot be remunerated uh, for services that they uh, provide without court approval. Uh, we do have a process of getting consent orders under Section 13. The regulations means that if you follow the regulations, you don't even have to get a consent order under Section 13 of the Charities of County Act. But there are limitations. Read them carefully. A director cannot be paid to be a director. Uh, a director under the regulations cannot be paid to be an employee. A director under the regulations cannot be paid for a real estate commission. So there are a number of different things that are limitations that are contained within it. So if you go through the, the guidance, you'll, you'll pick up a number of requirements, which I won't go through with you, but I will say this. If you're going to rely upon the regulations, you have an obligation to inform your members and you have to put it into your financial statements. So 
So I don't know how many directors really want to be pointed out that they're getting money from the charity that they're serving on. It's meant to be transparency. I always say to clients, is it really worth it? You know, take a sabbatical, you know, become an advisor to the board. Get off the board. It's, it's, it's too much. It's too much. But uh, sometimes people really want to be on the board and be paid and so forth. So there is now a mechanism to do that. Uh, I'm going to skip over some of the other legislation. You can take a peek at it uh, when you get a chance. Uh, instead, what I want to do is uh, go over to some of the case law. Lawyers love to read cases. It's great. It's our funny papers, you know, uh, on a weekend. A couple of takeaways for you, so you don't have to read it in detail. This one here, John Doe. Deals with the situation of is there basically crossover liability, vicarious liability between two corporations. So if you structured yourself, your charity, to have a, maybe an operating charity and a hold co for your land assets, how much uh, porous, uh, how much of, a, uh, of a, a crossover will there be? Lots of debate, no simple solution, but this is a case uh, involving uh, religious charities in, in Newfoundland that showed that there, there was not vicarious liability between uh, the, the diocese uh, in St. John's uh, and the particular situation, the, the school and the plaintiffs that uh, uh, unfortunately were, were abused. The, the takeaway is this, if you're going to have multiple corporations, keep them separate. The more that you can keep them compartmentalized, the better. The more that you have a crossover between boards and control, uh, you're going to have more problems. So this, again, is, is a good result, and it's something to be uh, learned from it. Uh, the only one I want to mention here is about the Highwood Congregation. Uh, this dealt with a, a gentleman who was um, disciplined by... Uh, a uh, congregation, unincorporated congregation. question that came up is, uh, is the matter reviewable by the court? The court said, if it's dealing with religious doctrine, no, they won't touch it. Um, but if there are uh, procedural matters, natural justice, that affect other rights, property rights, civil rights, then uh, it's possible that the court may, may intervene. And if you have an incorporated charity, um, You've got to remember you've got provisions under the CNCA and also on the upcoming ONCA uh, dealing with procedures for discipline of members that you have to comply with. So it's an interesting case, but it's not all that, uh, that helpful. A couple of ones here that I want to touch uh, a bit. Uh, this is the uh, FAS decision involving uh, CAMH. Um, situation where an individual gave a large uh, gift over to be used for a particular program, wanted reports uh, back from CAMH, wasn't satisfied with the reports. Um, and what uh, the donor wanted was uh, more accountability. And so brought an application to the Charities of County Act, Section 6, to ask the court to order a public inquiry by the public guardian trustee. The court declined uh, to, to do so uh, because... Uh, the section, section six, is not intended to provide the ability of donors to, uh, to interrogate a charity with what they do if in fulfillment of their charitable programs. I think the court got it right. It's under appeal, so we'll have to see what happens uh, with that. 
Uh, the Hafel Gallery decision, if you're involved with certified cultural property, this is a problem decision. It's also under appeal. Basically, the, the threshold has gone up, um, and it means it's harder to be able to make donations of certified cultural property. And why do you want that? Because you get an exemption from capital gains tax. So you need to watch that carefully if you've got clients that are going to be making uh, gifts of certified cultural property. Uh, this uh, decision involving the um, Canadian Hearing Society uh, is interesting because the corporation, the charities under the CNCA, Canada Not for Proper Corporations Act, that act provides very robust rights to members. Oppression remedies, which is crazy. Oppression remedies for a charity doesn't make sense. But, you know, if you're a for-profit company, got it, uh, but the CNCA provides for an oppression remedy. The court was uh, not prepared to enforce the oppression remedies because the bylaw provided for an arbitration uh, process. And the court said, no, you've got to go through the arbitration process before you can utilize the oppression remedies. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is when you're drafting your bylaws and you're concerned about things like oppression remedies, you may want to build in uh, some alternative uh, processes to deal with it other than uh, going before a court and dealing with the, C, uh, the CNCA. Uh, this case, McKay Cross Foundation, uh, donor gave $100,000, um, was not satisfied uh, with what was being done with it, and wanted a return of the gift. They're saying that there was a restricted charitable purpose, it wasn't being fulfilled, and the charity said, no, it was, it was a, a charity without, it was a donation without strings attached, and they fought it back and forth, and the court said it was a donation without strings attached and therefore the charity could keep it and the donor couldn't get it back. What's the takeaway? When you're doing gift agreements, you've got to be very careful with clarity on whether it's an unrestricted gift or a restricted gift. If it's a restricted gift, there can be rights that the donor still has. If it's an unrestricted gift, that's good for the charity, bad for the donor. Right? So you need to carefully uh, draft your, your uh, gift agreements. Finally, it's a fascinating case um, dealing with Mount Pleasant Cemetery. Facts are very unusual. It goes back to the 1800s, 1826. Mount Pleasant Cemetery, big operation, uh, created by statutes in 26 and 1849, and then again in 1871, uh, setting up a trust for cemeteries in Toronto. And what happened was uh, the, the, the current board back about, oh, back in the 80s, decided that uh, they didn't have to necessarily comply with the trust terms of the old legislation. They thought they were under the, the general statute, the Ontario Corporations Act, and therefore they were no longer complying with the old terms. The court had to look to see what, in fact, was applicable. Were the old statutes still applicable? Uh, or is it general legislation? And the court said, no, no, you've got to go back. You've got to look at your special legislation. And they did that in minutia. And they found that uh, there, there, in fact, was requirements for the election of trustees that hadn't been complied with, so the current board was not properly elected. And that the, the terms of that old legislation was still applicable, and that anyone appointed would have to be uh, done in accordance with that legislation. Indicated that uh, the, the cemetery corporation uh, was a trust, and it was a charitable trust, even though it was not a registered charity. So here we got the court 
declaring an organization to be uh, a, a charity. And as a result, uh, the court also said the purposes uh, in the legislation are not being complied with. They're too narrow. And the takeaway is take a look at your purposes. And if they're, if they're old, you may have to expand them. And if you're special legislation corporations, do go back and look at your legislation. Thank you for listening to the final episode of the Accounting and Regulatory Updates from the 2019 Not-for-Profit Forum Podcast Series. 